back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and we're back here with the wonderful clinical psychologist, Elina Vasilake. And today's episode is another Q&A session. The listeners and us love the Q&A, so I'm very excited for some great new questions. This week, we're covering topics ranging from self-confidence to spirituality, coping mechanisms, and support systems. Really interesting stuff. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Alina, it's so great to have you back. Thank you for doing this again. Hello, everybody. So great to be back. And uh, I'm also super excited. These are my favorite episodes as well, when uh, we are just uh, hearing and listening to our listeners' questions. So I'm excited. So I want to start off with this question because... It's been quite crazy, but this week I've spoken to at least four people who have told me about their anxiety or anxiety-like symptoms, and it seems that the way we're living in a way is helping to promote this, and somehow a lot of people report work has a lot to do with it, but also deeply personal problems, and it's really worrying. And so I want to start off with this question today, or it's more of a statement that was asked, Can you talk about coping mechanisms for everyday anxiety? Okay, it's a a very vast um, topic because definitely anxiety is very present with us in our day-to-day living and in a certain environment where the rhythm of life is very, very fast, where work, the focus on work is is, uh, something very significant. The culture of the place is in... in, uh, uh, somehow is very very focused on the on the work. So of course we dedicate a lot of of our energy and we put a lot of importance in this area of our life. So it will be a source of stress for us and anxiety. You're asking me about coping mechanisms. Uh, well, there can be so many different ways to to try to regulate this anxiety. I would say we cannot make it disappear. We will have to learn how to manage it, right? And we will have to learn what works for each of us. And this is a very individual and personalized work. We will have to figure out what works for each of us to regulate these levels of anxiety at the end of the day. For some people, it can be behavioral. It can be, you know, simply doing physical exercise, for example, to bring down those, to shake the stress, how I like to call it. For other people, it can be more on the side of uh, cognitive strategies. That means constant uh, awareness towards uh, anxiety triggering thoughts and changing those thoughts into more calming, into self-soothing thoughts, right? For other people, it can be, uh, and ideally, it should be a combination of both, right? And this goes back to what we've discussed in our episodes of cognitive behavior therapy, right? It's a little bit of that. So, but also, it's a question of finding, you know, finding a very personalized space where each of us, we feel that uh, we kind of reboost our energy or we uh, we get rid of the stressors in our life. So a space where it's just about, I am, you know, receiving a healing energy somehow. Yeah. And when I say healing energy, I don't talk necessarily about specific methods. I'm just talking about the sensation, the feeling of I am reboosting, I'm recharging my my uh, batteries as such. Yeah. And in this way, you can regulate that anxiety, the day-to-day anxiety. It's not a question of Always, always, I will, I will repeat this. When we deal with anxiety, it's not about stopping the anxiety. It's about learning how to tolerate the best we can the symptoms of anxiety or the waves of anxiety. 
I used to suffer from immense anxiety. And so I know how scary that feeling can be or how strong it can be. And I just want to quickly note that I used to get severe panic attacks. So at that moment, that rationalization was very difficult and it's a very momentarily thing. So do you perhaps have a tip on how to deal with severe severe anxiety or a form of panic attack that just comes in the moment? So panic attacks, panic attacks can happen to to any person at any certain point and uh, it can be triggered by any any different areas of our life, but definitely it's something that has significance uh, for us. So maybe it's a trigger uh, that comes from the area of health. Maybe it's a trigger that comes from the area of work and performance. Maybe it's a trigger that comes from the area of relationships and uh, how loved and accepted we feel. Uh, it can be triggered by anything really in life. How we deal with it is, um, well, as techniques, we always teach people grounding techniques more than anything else when it comes to panic attacks. What does it mean grounding? It means for them to to be able to engage and use the engagement of their senses in those moments of panic so then the brain somehow uh, manages to get a feeling or a, a confirmation of safety. Yeah. So let's say I'm in a full panic attack uh, moment and I use the grounding technique that can be very easy. It can be I go to my fridge and grab a cube of ice and that sensation of cold will ground me. Yeah, because it's automatically engaging my senses and it makes my mind disconnect from those irrational thoughts and, uh, you know, scary thoughts, wherever those are. And that will calm me down. Or it can be, you know, it can be walking uh, uh, fast or it can be, um, you know, touching a certain surface and feeling the, you know, those sensations. These are kind of grounding techniques, just a few examples. Um, but another person can also use physical exercise uh, because it's a question also to understand how each person responds in a panic attack. Most of the people incorrectly, they will paralyze themselves yeah in in uh, uh, in the experience of a panic attack and it's exactly what we shouldn't do yeah because when, if we if you paralyze yourself you're going to get scared even more the issue with the panic attack is that when it first happens it's very scary because most of the people especially if they don't have a lot of knowledge of hey this is anxiety and this you know can be a trick that your mind can really play on you and it can really happen to anybody they get really scared in that first panic attack and they don't know how to respond to it and the fact that they don't know how to respond correctly or what it is um keeps the problem going and it can even develop into what we call a panic disorder which is a fear of experiencing a panic attack at any point in time um so it's a question of also seeing how a person responds but it has a lot to do with learning um what it is and how to you know what's the best um uh, to response yeah that was so useful um and you made such a good point about the paralysis because when i have a panic attack the only thing i can do and think about I freeze, you know, in that moment and and that's it. That's all you think about this fear of death or you think that you're dying and you're overwhelmed with these emotions, heart racing fast. But I did notice that anytime someone distracts me or I, like you said, I use a certain technique to engage my attention to other things, essentially the, the panic does wear off in a way. So I think that was a very interesting point of doing the opposite. 
Well, um, uh, in general, a panic attack uh, will come with huge uh, physiological symptoms, and those are the scary ones, yeah? And obviously, the first reaction of a person would be to stop whatever they're doing, yeah? So if I'm walking and all of a sudden I feel so dizzy and I feel like I'm going to faint and I feel like I'm, I cannot, uh, uh, whatever, some people feel numbness and they cannot move, of course, the first thing I would uh, want to do is to stop what I'm doing. But actually, you need to keep doing what you're doing to give to your brain a message of I'm okay. And to play a lot with where you distribute, how you distribute your attention in those moments. Yeah. So as you very well said, if somebody distracts you, if somebody or something takes uh, away that attention from the physiological symptoms you're experiencing in that moment, you'll be fine because the panic attack in general lasts for 15, 20 minutes, maximum half an hour. It's a wave. It will come, it will feel intense and it will go. It's just a matter of learning what it is and learning what works best for you to do. I had a lot of situations where people would come in a full panic attack or they would call me in a panic attack and they would say, uh, I would ask him, okay, so what are you doing? And they would say, I'm doing nothing. I'm just staring at the, you know, at the ceiling. And I tell them, get up, walk, go and do something. And then after half an hour, they will call me and they will say, you know what? It passed. So, yeah. So the next question is an interesting one. It's specifically asking about spirituality. And this person asks, can spiritual practice affect mental health? Oh, well, um, interesting question indeed. And I'm not very sure how to answer this. I guess spirituality, it's a good thing. I like to use it a lot in my sessions as a resource. So, you know, when people tell me, oh, I'm very spiritual and I do this and I do that, maybe I do my meditations, maybe I do my, I don't know, yoga at a very spiritual level, maybe I do my prayers and I go to church or I go to mosque or whatever that spirituality is, you know, I consider it a huge resource and a huge, um, you know, um, I mean, source of strength for people. Um, But... I mean, I haven't had cases where the spirituality took a person away from the reality, but I'm not saying that that's not possible because, of course, it depends on what kind of spirituality we're talking about. If it's one that, you know, believes in harmful power or something that disconnects us more from the reality, then it can actually make you lose contact and maybe go into developing some kind of a delirium. But it it would not be just because of the spirituality. Let's make this clear. There must be some kind of vulnerability in the person to, to take that source of spirituality and somehow turn it into a, you know, a delirium or something that goes towards psychosis or something that goes towards something, uh, takes them towards this disconnection from reality. Because spirituality in all forms and shapes comes as, you know, to make us feel better, to make us be better, to make us be kinder, wiser. So it's never a source of negativity. I see it always as a resource. That's a very interesting uh, way of putting it. I, I never thought of spirituality actually in that negative connotation, but I think you're right. It could definitely happen. For me, I think connecting with nature is a form of a spiritual act or practice because I think being with nature, we know how many studies show the positive impact on nature and our well-being, but I also think it's instinctual. We don't really need science to know that nature can heal us. You know, we feel it when we watch a sunset or when we look into the mountains, it's all there. And I think it's beautiful and very healing. 
And I would say even music. I don't know if music can be considered a form of spiritual practice, but when I get lost in music, I guess that's a personal thing. I find it very healing. Um, but other people, like you said, engage in uh, meditation or evidence-based yoga practices. So yeah, um, I do agree that there is this healing aspect of spirituality. Yeah, and I think spirituality, again, is very, very personal. So it it's all about, it's not about what it is. It's about where it takes you in what kind of space, you know, superior uh, conscious uh, space is, is taking you. So as you say, it can be music. Yes, of course it can be music because maybe you go so deep into that music and you feel it into such a way in, uh, at a, such a level that it becomes spirituality for you um, or nature or, you know, it can be anything in reality, but something that somehow takes us at a higher level than our day-to-day, you know, routine and worries and concerns and level of uh, functioning. It just takes us to that higher level. And, but uh, for me, spirituality is always good. Yeah. So if if we call it spirituality, then it means it takes us into to a better place, not to a worse place. Now, Alina, this is a really interesting question. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of people would probably find this one interesting. It says, what does psychology say about love at first sight? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know if psychology says something about love at first sight. Well, love is a is a complex term, right? So loving a person definitely means knowing a person. So I'm not sure that we can consider love at first sight possible at the end of the day because loving somebody means to know somebody very well. Yeah, not even very well, but to know them, right? To know the big aspects of them. So love at first sight, uh, it can be definitely attraction, huge attraction. It can be chemistry. It can be even, you know, kind of passion. Uh, but love, uh, again, I find it to be a, a very complex, it's a complex, uh, you know, feeling. So uh, that definitely involves knowledge. Uh, experience with the person, with the person, with the thing you fall in love with, even if it's a thing, right? Or if it's an activity or if it's anything, anything that we fall in love with, if we think about it, we need to know it minimally. There's a minimum level of knowledge about that person or that thing or that activity or so, um, yes, love at first sight, I wouldn't call it love at first sight. I would call it attraction, I would call it spark. I would call it anything else but uh, love. <laughs> yeah, I think this will be a complex question, but just kind of related to that is, is there reasons why there is that feeling of attraction to some people? I know, obviously, most of the time it's because we find them physically, you know, good looking. But you know how they say beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Sometimes we can look at someone and we're like, you're, we're like so wowed with them. And then the, you're like a friend sitting next to you is like, what? <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know. I just find it very interesting how we can feel infatuated by a certain person's looks that we feel like we're in love with them or that, you know, we feel like this is love. Like you, you sometimes get people looking at someone and saying, oh, this is, I'm going to marry this person. I found my future wife or I found my future husband, you know, what, what, it, what is it that creates that kind of feeling in us? It's so strange. 
It can be a combination of different reasons uh, in reality. It is very possible and it in generally happens. You know, sometimes you see a person that, uh, rationally speaking, they tick all the boxes, but for whatever reason, you just don't like them, right? Or a person that, you know, rationally speaking, they don't tick most of the boxes, but at the end of the day, you feel this, you know, attraction or this kind of uh, energy that pulls you in somehow. Um, but... You see, the why, very difficult to to answer why that happens because it can be, definitely we know in psychology that people tend to go towards what's similar. So despite of the typical, um, you know, um, expression of uh, opposites attracts, actually the psychology proves that to be very wrong. People get attracted and tend to stay together based on similarities more than what's you know, opposite. It's a different story if deep inside I would like to do something in my life, I cannot do it. So that's why I admire a lot when I see it in others. Okay. So then I might feel that admiration and attraction towards people that can do things that I would love to do, but I cannot do them. Yeah. That can be, you know, a factor, Uh, but it can be a model. So this person reminds me of somebody from my past, from my family, from my whatever experience that I've admired so much and somehow subconsciously they connect me to that person. But it can also be um, simply that we feel that compatibility, that the way this person is allows me to be very much myself. (laughs) So because I feel so comfortable in the company of this person, then you know, I feel that attraction. So you see, it can be so many different reasons and I have others there. I mean, this is not the whole list, but it can be so many different reasons. One thing is, it's for sure, we should feel comfortable in the presence of others, right? And we should always allow ourselves, our feelings, our gut feeling to, you know, to be present. And if we feel good with somebody, we feel good with somebody. If we feel the attraction, we feel the attraction. We shouldn't necessarily go against it. That's what I would advise people to just listen to that, you know, intuition or to that natural feeling. This is very important. Very interesting stuff. So the next question, what is projection? And maybe I'll add and or ask if you could maybe give us an example of what you think that would be after defining it. It's a term we use a lot in psychology. Uh, projection in general is something that is well, in a very, very easy explanation, it's something that I actually have in mind. I think about it, but I don't necessarily openly express it. But then I project it on others or I, my brain will take any opportunity that comes from outside to express that. So I don't express it directly, um, but I do uh, subconsciously, unconsciously, whatever consciously, but without, you know, not intentionally, I will simply take any opportunity that life offers me to express that. So let's say that, simple example, I um, I am a person that, I don't know, I consider myself not to be very self-disciplined, let's say. So then I will criticize a lot when I see a person outside of me that, you know, is not very self-disciplined. I'll criticize them a lot for doing that uh, or for that lack of discipline. I'm making a projection there. Actually, deep inside, I feel that I don't have it or I am very concerned about that, but yet I will not express it in that way, but I will do criticize another person for it. Or let's say 
I don't like, uh, I'll express a lot, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. In reality, I might be concerned about that thing about myself, but I'm projecting it towards outside. So a little bit, uh, it's, it's an incorrect, we would say it's kind of an error in expressing the real feelings or the real thoughts. There's a blockage there in the right communication and it comes as a projection. How would you say someone can recognize these projections? Well, the therapy for sure will help you to notice that because again, in general, if you are going to point out that nobody will take it easily or nobody will take it in a very, you know, kind way. You have to be a very, very open-minded person and very okay with yourself to take such a criticism or to take this observation from outside if it's not coming from your therapist. Even as a therapist, if I see a person doing a lot of projections, I will wait quite a little bit until I, you know, the trust between us and the, you know, the attachment between us is quite strong in order to do that, um, you know, empathetic confrontation, we call it, where I show to the person that, hey, actually, this is a projection you're doing here. We can see projections a lot also between, so let's say I've I've suffered a lot from, you know, my mom used to do this to me, so then I project this on my partner. Or my dad used to do a certain thing to me that I didn't like it. And I and the anger, actually, I projected and I expressed it towards my partner, let's say. That's also a projection. So, Can you give me an example? Yeah, let's say that I used to be very much um, ashamed by my dad during childhood or during my life. Or I, I still am. Yeah, but yet towards my dad, I cannot say anything. I just take it and, you know, put up with it. Or sometimes I might also have conflicts uh, with him, but definitely it's still happening or it happened to me a lot. So then I'm very, very sensitive. And when this happens coming from a person uh, that is close to me, like my husband, my partner, whatever, I will express a lot of anger, a very, very, uh, not very justifiable anger that it's actually coming from the other place, from the place of the shaming that I've received from my dad. So that could be an example of a projection. Very interesting. Elena, the next question, how can I take steps to find more confidence in myself? Okay. First, identify what, uh, what are the sources of your insecurity. Okay. I would say really be very clear about what is giving you your personal insecurity. Is it you know, is it a negative self-concept or core negative belief, such as I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not, uh, you know, clever enough, and so on and so on. Identify that very clearly. Self-confidence, at the end of the day, the confidence comes with what? With experiences. The more you experience life, the more you are able to deal with problems and solve them and push through them, That's how we gain our self-confidence. We don't gain self-confidence despite of what people think, but we don't gain gain self-confidence by doing nothing. Um, Yes, I agree that maybe self-confidence is coming, can come a little bit from positive feedback from others. Yeah, so when we receive positive feedback from others, approvals, rewards from others, of course, that will play a role. But even those rewards, even those positive feedbacks can only get to us if we are experiencing life. So. Again, you want to build up your self-confidence, start experiencing life without the fear of failure. Get rid of the fear of failure. Get rid of the word failure in your dictionary. Tell yourself failure doesn't exist, experiences exist, and throw yourself into life experiences, whatever those are, without trying to 
select them too much because if we select them too much then obviously you'll you know you'll reduce your exposure to life but self-confidence is really it's coming with experience so it's as simple as that i guess the you know the recipe <laughs> no it's it's very relatable um it, literally just earlier today um i was speaking to a friend and he or she was telling me about a certain doubt that was holding them back from doing something that they really, really want to do. And they kept saying the word, I self-sabotage myself a lot. Like I let the fear or the, this is not good enough for it to be released into the world, hold me back. And when I had a look at what they were doing, I was like, this is absolutely amazing. And you should let it out into the world. You know, um, let's just say it was a sort of a, collection of poems, for example, and it's, it's absolutely beautiful, but there's this fear that it's not going to be either well-received. Well, I don't know what their fear exactly is, but whatever their fear is, they're sabotaging them themselves. And I guess it is related to confidence in a way that that's holding them back. Yes. Confidence, fear of failure, a belief that they are not good enough, a belief that they will not be appreciated or received uh, well, It can be a combination of all of those, or it can be one of those, or it can be also some traumas from, from their previous experience where they've tried something, but that was not received well. It can be so many different things, right? Again, we need to understand what holds me back, but definitely what holds us back is fear. Now, that fear can be fear that I'm not going to be liked, fear that I'm not going to, people will react badly, fear that it's not going to be perfect and my own inner critic will shout at me and really put me down. But it's fear. It's definitely fear. Yeah, absolutely. Very much in line with this um, current question. The next question is, can you talk about the importance of a support system? Support system, I guess we... I mean, the person that asked the question probably refers to social support system. We all need a support system. Connection with others is very important. Life is difficult. Life will always throw at us difficult moments, difficult situations, uh, uh, negative events. I mean, that we cannot control. Um, so what helps us push through? Well, it's our resilience. And at the end of the day, part of that resilience is to always protect our um, support Uh, to have a system of support, yeah? Now, that system of support definitely involves connections with others, which is very, very important, but it can also be other things, right? Like, you know, activities that I do, like things that have a healing power. Uh, that spirituality can be in my support system. But if we specifically talk about the social one, it's very important, definitely it's very important. And it's very important for each person to have a very personal one. So it doesn't matter if I, you know, get married or I am or I'm not in a relationship or it needs to be my support system. I need to feel that I have those friends, those connections, those people, those colleagues, whatever they are, at whatever level of connection they are, but they're mine. So when we have that feeling, we really feel like somebody has my back. And this goes back to our... Uh, one of the core emotional needs that we have since we are babies of feeling protected. Yeah. And we see it in animals as well. Most of the animals, they'll stay together for safety and for protection, right? And we have it as well, because at the end of the day, we have those instincts in us. So definitely we want to, to, um, to have this uh, support system. And 
it's very important to keep putting effort and energy into maintaining the support system, even when we are doing well and when we believe that we don't need it. Sometimes we go through phases in life where work is so stressful that we forget to dedicate time to you know, our friends or our people or our relationships uh, or where we are super good in our relationships so then we let go of friendships and stuff like that. So it's very important to keep it as a constant in your life because it is part of your rock, it's part of your center, it's part of you know what is going to help you push through a difficult time in your life as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I definitely think support systems are a protective factor even for us deteriorating or going into a bad place. It, it can help us or it can even stop us in a way from from going into a bad mental state. But also I think support system is even important in a context of work or growing yourself as an individual, like having, I would say, even mentors or people that you look up to and you rely on to guide you. If you if you look at very influential people, most of them had either a mentor or some kind of a support system that helped them grow. So I definitely think it's important in so many aspects in our love life, our personal life, our work life. It's, it's very crucial. Yes. And this support can be in different areas. I mean, you can have a support system that are friends, family, a therapist, a mentor, as you say, person that helps me in the spiritual world, yeah, a guru. So it can come from different parts, um, different areas of my life, but the more the better, right? So the more I have, more supported I would feel. And it's literally, I'm like a plant that will grow straight <laughs> rather than going uh, sideways, yeah, because I'm supported. Yes. <laughs> Such a cute analogy. Love it. Elena, as a final question, and I really love this question, can you give us any tools, tips, and tricks for changing our behaviors towards achieving our goals? I guess it's still in, still in the same theme, and I'm definitely going to take notes on this one. I guess uh, be very clear and define very clearly what your goal is, number one step. Make an action plan, and in this action plan, Cut it into small, small steps that you that really each step gives you a sensation that is achievable, a sensation that you are capable of achieving it. Yeah, each person will know how small those steps have to be in order to give themselves the sensation of I can do this. Yeah, again, fear is one element that can stop us from achieving our goals. Yeah, fear or the self perception of self-efficacy. So if I perceive myself as not being able to do something, of course, my perception and my experience of, of that habit, of that action would be very difficult one. Yeah. So then what do I do? I set up my goal. I cut it into, I make the action plan with the steps. I cut those steps into as small and as achievable as possible. So I do, I make sure that I give myself constantly the maximum opportunity of success on each of these steps. After I've done that, also very important aspect, I reward myself. I give myself acknowledgement and merit for each achieved step towards my goal. And I keep going. I always do the next right thing. I never tell myself off when, you know, it takes longer, when it's harder, when I, you know, I face difficulties, when I face surprises that I did not anticipate because it's, we cannot anticipate everything, right? I just, um, I just tell myself, all I have to do is to keep going. 
and to learn as I go, right? But I think those are the, the few tips that I, I can recommend. Such great tips. Alina, this has been great as always. Thank you so much for your time. It's always so great listening to you. And always, always a pleasure to be here and answer these questions. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening. Please do support us by either subscribing to keep up to date with upcoming episodes or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much and we'll catch you in the next episode.